BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time to the Ben Jarosky Show as I speak. It is Friday, October 29, 2021. The headlines. My beloved bright one, Chicago Sun-Times, home delivered as always. Ex-supervisor charged with sex assault of underage lifeguard. Yes, That's the headlines in the Sun-Times today. That's an ongoing story, and it's kind of just like it's been around for a while. I want to give a shout-out to my uh, good friend Danny Mialopoulos at WBEZ. He has done a, he's been a bulldog in this one, uh, just forcing, I mean forcing, dragging, kicking every step of the way, the powers that be in the city of Chicago and the mayor's office and the park district to do something about this unbelievable scandal of sexual assault uh, of women at by lifeguards, by their peers or their bosses. What an outrage. Anyway, that's the headline. And apropos, it's kind of apropos to uh, my two distinguished guests who are joining with me uh, today. And they're regulars on the show, and they always come as a tag team. I can't remember why they were a tag team originally, but they are on this show. So I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and the first person who I'm asked to introduce will be someone whose initials are L.G. Hi, Ben. It's Lori Glenn. I'm a political and public affairs consultant on social justice issues uh, worldwide. <laughs> that summarizes it worldwide. Good to be here. Yes, it's always good to have Lori Glenn on the show. <laughs> I've known Lori since the 1980s, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and our yes, other you. our other guests, her initials are J.I. Introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. I'm Juanita Irizarry, or Juanita Irizarry, whichever one you can pronounce. And uh, my professional role is as executive director of Friends of the Parks. But as we always say, I may say some things here that have nothing to do with my 
official uh, point of view for Friends of the Parks, although there's always a little mixing of these things. And I will say, also an old friend of Lori Glenn, we've done lots of messing around and good trouble together since the 1990s. So that's probably how we ended up tag teaming here with you. Yeah, uh, yeah. I kind of, I, I brought her along. I said, we got to bring her here. Is that how it happened? Oh, and I should mention my company's name. Yes, it, it is. Think Inc. My company is Think Inc. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's always good to mention the company. There you go. Uh, so yes, uh, I'm going to repeat what, what Juanita said. Hey, she's got opinions of her own. People leave her alone. All right. I don't want to get her any trouble because she speaks her mind. <laughs> hey, and all you cancel culture people out there, all you right wing MAGA people, if something happens to Juanita, you defend her, okay? Because you don't want any cancel culture or culture canceled. All right. So she can speak her mind, ladies and gentlemen. But she's going to be very clear with what I'm about to introduce, the topic I'm going to introduce, because this one is a tricky one, Juanita, uh, in your role as uh, executive director of Friends of the Parks. Uh, this outrageous scandal, this is me speaking, uh, has uh, finally, and I say finally, because it took way too long, in my humble opinion, uh, led to uh, Mike Kelly, general superintendent of the Park District, uh, stepping down. Uh, my opinion, if it was up to me, of course it's not, the whole damn board would step down because what an outrage at the oversight or lack thereof at the Chicago Park District. And once again, thanks to Danny Mialopoulos uh, for breaking this story, being a bulldog in this. Juanita, your thoughts on the legacy of Mike Kelly, the G general superintendent, the former general superintendent of the Chicago Park District? And where do we go from here? Take it away. Yeah, well, you know, we are really glad for Dan Mialopoulos. We feel like he did he did the work, you know, uh, to bring this to light, um, and we are so thankful. And I, in fact, I had a good conversation with him about that exactly. Thanked him personally as well, um, because Mike Kelly has now gone for this particular reason. But to be honest with you, it was time, you know, for a lot of reasons. And, you know, this is just this lifeguard scandal that it took way too long to come to light and to be, um, you know, for the people who were abused to begin to see the possibility that maybe actually it will be addressed in appropriate ways, including criminal charges. Um, there were lots of other things before that that have shown that Mike Kelly lacked appropriate judgment oftentimes. Um, it's not surprising that there was basically a cover-up because we've seen that kind of behavior within the Park District before. Um, and uh, we knew Mike Kelly to have a very loose relationship with the truth. So it was time for him to go. And in fact, it was actually um, good to hear that the Park District Board had actually asked for his resignation, um, but not announced yet that they were going to fire him um, when the mayor actually made it public that she was calling for him to be fired, and then we actually saw his resignation. So we did find out the next week that the Board of Commissioners had indeed told him, look, you're going to be fired for a cause if you don't resign. So we're glad for that. Too late, you know, um, but we're glad they, they had at least figured that out by then. Took a long time to get there. Um, and there's still a lot of questions about, you know, who, who on the board knew how bad this was for a long time and also maybe still needs to be held to account. Well, Juanita. It's hard to change a culture. It's hard. 
And this is a long time coming. Uh, I would say the culture that's hard to change is like the entire city of Chicago, which hasn't really changed since I moved here in 1981, Lori Glenn. That takes a long, you know, 40 years to change a culture in this city. And, and Juanita, I know you can't go into the heads of members of the Park District Board or uh, people in the mayor's office or any of the powers that be that would have jurisdiction on this matter. Uh, but this is a question I get all the time. And I don't have an answer for it. And maybe you don't either. Uh, maybe Lori doesn't either. But the question I get all the time is, why did they take so long to take action on a whistleblower's complaint? And the whistleblower sent that complaint in months and months ago. And uh, they just sat on it. Mike Kelly and the board, of, it just they sat on it. And uh, the mayor, a second complaint came to the mayor's office. She kicked it over to Kelly, and it didn't seem like the mayor's office did anything about it. So people ask me, go, Ben, what's going on in the city of Chicago that they just sit on these complaints, these horrific uh, allegations of sexual assault and sexual abuse? Do you have any sense of what, what happened? Well, I, I will say that I don't think all board members are the same on the Board of Commissioners. I do think Avis Lavelle has an awful lot of power and very well may have known things that not everyone knew. Um, I'm not trying to, you know, like just give the rest of them a pass and I don't know what each of them knew, but I've had some conversations behind the scenes. Um, you know, to, to, to think that as more things were revealed, some of them figured out that this was a bigger deal than maybe they knew before, right? But I think the culture has been, you know, the board members come to a board meeting to prep before the board meeting and are told how they're going to vote. <laughs> and that's pretty much how it goes, you know. Now, I know that there are, there are some who have been asking for more background and more prep further ahead of the meetings and, and, and doing a little bit more than maybe in the past. Um, and so I'm going to cross my fingers that maybe some of the newer appointees may come at this a little bit differently than those who have, you know, are holdovers from Rahm Emanuel's administration. And that's not to say that I'm like giving big cheer to Lori Lightfoot, but I am saying that I think there are some newer board members that might approach things differently than some that have been there forever. Well, uh, this would be a, a time when I would say this is definitely one uh, culture I'd like to see canceled. Uh, and that would be the culture of political appointees in the city of Chicago, uh, afraid of their shadow, afraid to take a stand that might uh, anger somebody in power. Uh, don't talk, don't breathe, don't do anything that calls attention to yourself, and then rubber stamp whatever idea, even if it's preposterous, that comes before them. Lori Glenn, you're waiting to say something. Go ahead. Well, but I do believe that is part of the culture, which is that if you're appointed by the mayor... Well, then you're supposed to toe the line. And um, when, and I think it's regardless of whatever mayor it is, they believe that you're my people and your job is to listen to the staff people who I are working with my administration. And based on our recommendations, you're to get our agenda through. And to be a renegade, to actually have your own voice, I think you can get fired. And I think that we see... Um, more and more as we see that, you know, people will uh, 
do whatever needs to be done so that they can keep their seat. Oh, I know, Joe Manchin. He will do whatever he can to keep his conservative Democratic seat because he's not a friggin' Democrat. He just calls himself one. And because he wants to keep his seat, we are being held hostage as an entire party. But I digress. So I want to say that this is just not unusual. In the land of politics, it's about people wanting power. We give people power. We say, oh, isn't this good? Doesn't this taste good? Want a little power for breakfast? And then we don't teach them what to do with it. We don't train them that now we've not really given you this power so you can just do whatever you want and feel so you can tell your parents how important you are because you had a shitty childhood and you want to prove to your mother and father you're important now and fulfill some need that we do not care about. But I digress again. Let's see, how hard is it to get really good people in positions of authority? Hmm. Juanita. Yeah, well, let me just add, I do think it's a, a little bit better under Lightfoot. Um, I've seen oh. this. I've seen the Chicago Plan Commission uh, leadership ask a lot. Teresa Cordova. Yes. I think um, so. Teresa's got a really independent streak. Yep. And that's not always appreciated, I'm sure. Right. And and I do think um, there's a little bit more ans asking of questions at the Park District than there had Full been Full disclosure, she's been our client, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But she's actually who I was thinking of, and I know I've, I've heard... Uh, you know, I've heard a, a number of comments at some of those meetings that are much more oriented towards asking questions than just passing things through under a rubber stamp than in previous Chicago Plan Commissions. Well, let me uh, follow up on something that uh, Lori Glenn said, and I'll go to you, Lori, first, and then uh, Juanita, you can weigh in on this. Uh, and Lori, you said they're afraid of getting fired. And let me just point out, uh, these are uh, appointed positions. Uh, most of them are non-paying. Most appointees are non-paying. If they do get pay, it's a negligible amount. Uh, and most of the people that are appointed to these positions, or many of them are professionals, lawyers, et cetera, and so forth, uh, who already make you know a living wage, to put it mildly. So I'm, I'm really baffled here. As somebody who has been fired and life goes on, uh, there are things in the world worse, I know, than getting fired. I could probably come up with at least 50 things worse than getting fired. So I don't understand. Yeah, but it like, depends if you want to be in the game. If you want to be in the game, people are not in politics for money, except, yes, yes, money is a form of power, and people who need more of it, you know, they do illicit things. But Really, there's different motivations. So people who go into politics, they're not motivated primarily by money. They are motivated primarily by power and the desire to have it and have as much of it and influence as they can. And if you get fired, you are not, you know, they want to be in the game, quote unquote. They want to be a player, quote unquote. They want to play. And if you're, and, and to be, a player, you need some kind of institutional base, like even, and I say this with love, Juanita is here on this show, even though the opinions that Juanita says today are her own, but she is also in many spaces because she's the president, the executive director, the president of the Friends of the Parks. That is an institutional base that gives her power. 
And if you are the co a commissioner, a city commissioner, or you are the head of a commission, people will listen to you. And that gives you a, a space, a place. You, Ben Jarofsky, you're a reporter. You call, you call from your podcast, you call as a writer for the reader. That's an institutional space. People re return your calls. So um, people fear that loss of power. And it takes an incredible amount of courage to say, I am going to stand by what I believe in, not because the polls tell me to do it, not because I want to um, be in this position so I can tell my friends I am the commissioner of hoo-ha land, but because actually you have values, you're value-centered, and you believe in things, and you really want to make the world a better place, or you want to be a quote-unquote public servant serving the quote-unquote public good. And that, unfortunately, we don't have enough people, I believe, in the public realm today who are doing that. Let me uh, follow up on this, something you said. I listened very carefully to what you said, uh, Lori. <laughs> and uh, so follow me on the inherent contradiction of what you said. Uh, people want to have power, and so they uh, eagerly accept uh, an appointment to a board where they immediately become powerless. So they want, so they get power by not exercising power by merely being a silent tool uh, to be used by a powerful mayor or a powerful force at the... It is so bizarre. Only in Chicago do you get power by being powerless. Juanita Irizarry, your thoughts about this? Well, I'm picturing some people I know who then are just happy to get appointed to the next board <laughs> and then appointed to the next board and invited to all the right political receptions and then with their picture on Facebook, hugging the right people. So it's really more about that than it is about exercising their power at that particular table. Wow. That's right. Because it's really about human nature. So I was talking with my colleague, shout out to Link Cohen, one of the great writers in the world who I'm so glad works with Think Inc. And we were talking about how do you get people to do the right thing in the world? How do you get, how do we build, you know, positive social movement and 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 I'm like well you really have to address human nature and I think it's really hard because as humans we are just so filled with foibles we have fears we have doubts we have cravings and a lot of those cravings for people and power is to have stature to have a platform to be able to say walk into a room and say I am Joe Blow or Joanna Blow, and I am the title of this. <laughs> but it is understandable. I, I want to say, when I first started my own company, and I was uh, very young, uh, and I'm not anymore, but I had, when I at, was 25, and then when I was 28 again, and I was restarting my company, and or 30, and people would come up to me, and I'd say, oh, I have a political consulting firm, and they go, Hmm, really? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I go, uh, well, who are your clients? And then I knew I could get them because my first client was, well, it's the first National Bank of Chicago. And uh, 
hello. <laughs> and so then it gave me like big credibility. Like all of a sudden they'd frown. They'd be like, oh, oh okay. You know, oh, she does have a firm. And do you have, you know, like, so having stature, having institutional power is very important to people. Uh, and because people for, for their sense of self, for their sense of purpose in life, Anyway, well, you know, Juanita, my, my your thoughts. I, I, I think many of us need therapy and coaching. <laughs> um, yes. You know, I, I was literally thinking about a, an executive leadership program I went through a number of years ago, and I got to have an executive coach, and I was getting ready to leave a position, and my coach asked me, "Are you so intertwined with your role that you will have trouble when you leave it because you and this organization are the same thing in your own head, right?" That's right. Thankfully. They asked me that question. Thankfully, I actually had sorted some of that out and have other bases in my life that I find my identity in. And so I was able to move on and not be like, oh, my God, I'm worthless now that I'm not in that role. Right. But maybe too many of us haven't had that therapy or coaching. No, that's actually a very good point, Juanita, uh, how your identity uh, with the position that they've given you becomes so overwhelming that you'll do whatever it takes uh, to keep that identity, keep that position. Otherwise, you'll be crushed. And I think that's really what Lori was getting at. But I'll just summarize Lori's last riff. If you want somebody to do the right thing in the world, the last thing you should do is put them on a mayoral appointed board because then you're pretty much guaranteed that they will do the wrong thing, okay? Uh, but... Cool. But it's not just the mayoral board, it's the gubernatorial board. It's like all these commissions. It's, you know, you're just, you know, the Peter principle, you're just pushed up. I mean, a lot of times people are really powerful or get appointed because they don't rock the boat. Yeah. <laughs> I've watched this. The people who really are mouthy, the people who say what they really think, People talk about them and say, oh, we don't want them on our board. They are troublemakers. Oh, they my. want people who go along and get along. And I've watched the most brilliant people that I've known be sidelined because people didn't like the fact that they challenged them, that they they were challenging, that they were, you know, being Thomas Paine, who said uh, one of our founding people, theoretically, he always said that you, if something's true, you should be able to just question it and question it and question it. You never stop questioning it. But um, as a questioner, I know that I've irritated the shit out of people because I wouldn't go along and do exactly what they wanted me to do. And clients who were like, hasta la vista, Lori, because we want you to do this. And I'm like, eh, I, I, no. <laughs> Juanita, so, that's that always very popular. Is, is that your uh, view of Chicago? Yeah, as well? I mean, I, I was thinking about the challenge of working in advocacy spaces where sometimes the role is totally to fight, um, and sometimes the role is to collaborate and work from the inside. And I think that's the hardest part of of the roles that I've played because I have a lot of friends who've chosen to only be on the outside fighting and I've had I have friends that have chose to only be on the inside um, and it, personally a lot of the roles I've played call for going in between those spaces yeah you always need an outside and inside game 
and it's hard you know it's hard and to i know that there are some spaces where i'm like they i'm i mean the only thing they see me as is bad cop because in that space i'm just bad cop and that's it you know whereas there's other places where i am good cop um it so we have to decide which roles we want to play you know and and so different what folks I want use to different roles <laughs> So what I want to ask is, in this redistricting, Adam Kinzinger, who is probably, you know, he's a very conservative guy, but the most normal of these bizarre Trump people and that have completely co-opted and taken over the Republican Party, why did the Democrats want to get rid of him when actually they would, why wouldn't they have carved out a space to keep him as he is the reasonable leader because we can't continue on having people like McCarthy and other crazies. When Liz Cheney becomes my heroine, I feel like I'm on drugs. You know, like, <laughs> and I'm not doing drugs. Could you, could you imagine, by the way, if Liz, you know what I mean? if Liz Cheney was a Park District appointee, would Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger <laughs> have looked the other way at evidence of uh, sexual assault? Or would they have spoken out? I don't know. Right. I don't know. Who would have been a better Park District appointee? Liz Cheney or the people they put on the board? That's an interesting question, Lori Glenn. That's too much for a Friday afternoon while we're there. Uh, all right. Uh, I can answer your question or I'll venture an opinion. Uh, but Juanita, do you want to uh, take the first stab at uh, what Lori had to say? In other words, she's talking about the congressional redistricting that just went down. It was just signed into law today, Friday, by... And put Chewy Garcia and Marie Newman in the same district. And in that is such an F you. That is so extraordinary. I was like, seriously? Really? Yeah. yeah. And I love both of them. I'm, you know, I just am like... Yeah, really? I've, I've had a busy day. So I've, I've like, I've seen some of this, but I haven't had enough time to figured out because it did leave me confused well let me put it to yeah, this way actually, I, I am now going to yeah, take yeah. Uh, the opposite point of view and I'm going to defend the map and uh, I will say okay so here we go so we have a situation in the United States of America where political parties are effectively who are in power are allowed to gerrymander legislative districts to enhance their power we do not have a fair mop process across the board Therefore, any Republican in the state of Illinois who says he or she advocates fair maps is a freaking hypocrite. Not that it matters, because pretty much every Republican in the country is a hypocrite right now. When a Republican in the state of Illinois says that he or she advocates fair maps, he is merely, folks, please believe this. Don't be foolish. Don't be dumb. Don't be like a Park District board member who looks at evidence of sexual assault and then <laughs> suddenly can't speak. You have First Amendment rights to think what you want. So any Republican in the state of Illinois who says that he or she believes in fair maps is a hypocrite because that is just a tactic and a tool they're using to win a political fight in the state of Illinois. When they stand up for fair maps in the state of Texas, where they're gerrymandering the hell out of Democrats and getting creating a Republican, an impossible Republican uh, majority, then I will believe one word that they say, Lori Glenn, in the state of Illinois. Now, but I, now, I'm not talking wait, let me that. finish. Now, in the state of Illinois, that. you have to view it as an entire country, and there's going to be a battle in Washington as to who controls Congress, Nancy Pelosi or Kevin McCarthy. I am working from the assumption that Lori Glenn and Juanita Irizarry hope that Nancy Pelosi emerges victorious and is the Speaker of the House as opposed to Kevin McCarthy. The only way you can overcome the gerrymandering of the Republicans in Texas Michigan, 
Pennsylvania, Georgia, etc., is to gerrymander the hell out of the Republicans in Illinois. And if Adam Kinzinger loses in that little battle because he's too chicken to run against a right-wing Republican in a super Republican district, so be it. I'm not in a position... But he's not done. He's going to go run for governor or something. I don't really care. I'm not talking about, like, because I like Adam Kinzinger, I could give a shit about him. But, in fact, he's one of the more normal Republicans. Why did they not gerrymander the other guy, LaHood, out? They, Why they're, well, they're in the same district. It, he didn't want to run against LaHood because he knows that he cannot win in, in, a, in a district. So the only way he you could hold, if you want to preserve his seat, you have to put him in a district that's roughly 50-50. And therefore, you're in a position where you're fundamentally damaging the electability of a Democrat. Because what if you put him in the same district as Lauren Underwood? And he defeated Lauren Underwood. Would you rather have Lori no, Glenn, no, no, Lauren Underwood, or would you rather have Adam Kinzinger? Answer that question, please. No, of course, that's not the point. The point is that we know that the Republicans have just, they always seem to just plan more. You know, they've been doing, um, you know, gerrymandering of local districts for years now. For the last 20 years, they've invested in this. And that's why we're so screwed in Texas and these other states. And I'm not going to address whether or not I agree with the gerrymandering per se of Illinois. What I'm curious about is why they had to put Chewy and Marie Newman in the same district. I don't know that. Now, I'm segueing. That, that, I teach no, my okay. clients how to do. So that. we now agree that <laughs> we now agree that we don't care that Adam Kinzinger's congressional career is over. Okay, at least we agree on that. Uh, now moving on to uh, look. There's so many. Uh, balls that they're juggling when they do a remap. And uh, so it was either Marie Newman in the same district as Sean Caston, Marie Newman in the same district as Laura, uh, Lauren Underwood, Marie Newman in the same district uh, as Chewy, and they ended up with the outcry moving uh, Marie Newman to the same district as Sean Caston. She's already announced she's running in that district. So now my guess is Sean Caston has a huge decision to make. Will he run against uh, Marie Newman and have a mini civil war in a Democratic primary? Or will he step back for the good of the team and endorse Marie Newman? And that'll be interesting. You know, Marie Newman, all, right out of the, I don't know if you saw her press release, uh, Lori Juanita, she said she called on the fact that there were so few women in the congressional district. So she already I, is. I think the key word you used before was balls. So <laughs> I have to say that uh, I kind of felt like. So here we have this one woman who is an extraordinary woman. I've liked her from the first time she called me for money, you know, dialing for dollars. And I was like, I like you. And this was years ago. And we have a joke because she calls me like, you know, once a quarter. I'm like, okay, 250. Okay, you're doing great. I got to go. You got to go and get something from someone who's got a lot more money than me. And um, she's terrific. So it does say something to me that... Uh, if what is true is that Caston, and I like Sean Caston, in fact, David Marienthal, my partner, is a big supporter of his, so I don't want him to be pissed at me. But I, and I've walked precincts for Caston. He's a really good guy. I just hate to see that they're being put up against one another when these are the voices in Congress, because Caston's been really good at moderate, at being a moderating voice, I think, between a lot of people. It seems, at least the skinny, it says that. 
I don't know the details. Juanita, do you have any thoughts? I just hate to see this. I'm excited about a second Latino congressional district. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so going to change, you know, everything Lori said, yes. Um, but I have been waiting for the day that, that we get a second uh, Latino district. Yeah. So um, it'll be very interesting to see um, what happens with that district. But I also personally have been more tuned into the struggles between Latino and African-American legislators about the balance of power um, yeah. in between our communities of color. So um, whew, it's a lot to, yeah, to that, try that to is, uh, sift through. And I've got a bit more sifting to do personally. All right. I'll hold back on getting into discussion of the, 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 the pr- uh, coming war. With the, another battle. district, actually, um, Juanita, there's more opportunity for you to run for office. I knew somebody would say that. (laughs) (laughs) So to remind everybody that Juanita Irizarry actually did run for uh, alder person and lost by uh, not very much. And and there are some of us in the world who hopes that she will run again. Run, run, Juanita, run. Win, Juanita, win. I appreciate your... Show of support. Uh, all right. <laughs> so before we lose Park District conversation altogether, um, or, or environmental talk altogether, and move on to other topics, although we already did uh, move on. That was a great riff, uh, by the way, Lori Glenn. Um, so, Juanita, please, uh, the last time you were on the show, we had a bit of a discussion about General Iron uh, and uh, environmental concerns on the southeast side of Chicago, where the city of Chicago is sort of like, putting everything that uh, is pollution causing. I exaggerate. <laughs> uh, so talk about the, la- the latest with General Iron. Go ahead. Yeah, so on November 4th, the city is supposed to be stating their position, as I understand it, about what they have found in terms of the, the, the study that has been done of air pollutants throughout the whole ward, because part of the the question was, the 10th ward is already an environmental justice community. You can't just think about the permit for General Iron in the context of that site. You have to think about air pollution in the whole area. And so there had to be more study about that. So there have been little bits and pieces that have come out that, yes, actually there are a lot of contaminants, but we don't yet know what the city is going to say about whether it has changed their mind about supporting General Ayer's relocation there or not. But that is imminent. Um, We hear that that's going to happen on November 4th. In the meantime, just this week, Friends of the Parks, along with Open Lands and Environmental Law and Policy Center and Alliance of the Southeast, all filed comments with the Illinois EPA against the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who somehow thinks it's a good idea to build a new 25-foot pollution dump on the lakefront. Like, like we were writing our comments while there were 16-foot waves on the lakefront, right? And you're like, who in their right mind would think it's a good idea to dump toxics on the lakefront? It's on the, literally at the confluence of the lakefront and the Calumet River. And basically, the Illinois EPA is setting itself up to roll over and let the feds in the form of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers break a bunch of rules. I, Illinois EPA is going to have to break rules to get there, but they're going to give them a permit to do stuff that they don't 
that is not legal. <laughs> so, you know, the environmental justice community is just going to get further dumped down. And that is the world we live in. Is there um, any way this will uh, this could be stopped? Is there are other pressure points? Yeah. Well, you know, we're certainly calling on the city and it's uh, the Department of Transportation, Gia Biagi, who has signed a letter of intent to be a cost share partner. The city's going to put in $10 million to help this happen. Um, but it's really the Department of Transportation that is the partner making it happen. So we are calling on her to step in and say no. And just, if you look at the 17-page document we put together, you cannot not see all the ways in which the rules and laws are being broken. Um, and, you know, there's the Illinois EPA who could stop it. You know, there are Illinois legislators who could stop it. There's also a lawsuit that could stop it. So all of those things are in the realm of possibility at this point. All right, we'll be following that one. And uh, when I mention General Irons, it's uh, a quick transition uh, to my beloved hideout. General Iron is a uh, crushing facility, uh, and uh, it operated on the north side of Chicago for uh, many years right across the river. Uh, from the hideout, the bar that uh, I love so much, where we do our monthly um, First Tuesday show. We all love the hideout. Yes. Shout out to Katie and Tim Totten. And uh, they were, uh, not everybody loves the hideout. Uh, uh, it, they were victimized over the last couple of weeks. And I know, Lori, you, you, you know what ha happened because you read the newspaper. Um, I don't know what to call them. Uh, vandals, terrorists, terrorist vandals. Uh, of the right. When people on the right do acts of violence that are intended to intimidate other people into c canceling their culture, what do we call them? I would think to call them terrorists, but terrorists. Uh, yeah, no, so no, they're terrorists. They cut the uh, power cord at the uh, at the hideout. They sprayed graffiti, uh, anti-masking graffiti on the hideout, apparently because the hideout uh, has a policy that to get in, you have to show that you've been vaccinated. Uh, and so it's a form of intimidation, Lori. Do you, don't you agree with me? Oh, completely. And to me, what's just um, unbelievable is that the whole sense of the public good here, Katie and Tim are doing, and the other owners of the hideout are doing what is in the public good to ensure the safety and soundness and health of people who would enter the hideout to know that they would do whatever they can to make them safe. And that makes them, I know, good people, responsible people. They are caring about the people who come into their space that no one would get inadvertently sick in being inside the hideout. And in general, we know that in our country today, for people to say, it's my right, you know, and it's hilarious that it's the same people who say, it's my right to uh, not wear a mask or have a vaccine, but you better not have an abortion. <laughs> so it's hilarious how it's the same people, whereas I'm a person who has had an abortion and I am strongly in favor of abortion rights for young women. That's not an issue for me anymore, but I would hate to see them taken away. And I wear a mask. I've got so many masks, they're coming. I mean, like every pocket I wear, I've got like five masks coming out of my pockets and clothes. And try to remember which one is too dirty that I've got to throw it away. And so shame on these people. It's uh, this whole sense again of not understanding the public good, and that for us, to the individual good is so inextricably tied into the public good. And that my wearing a mask 
is not just for my safety. As we know from the science, it's that if I wear a mask, it keeps the COVID um, uh, virus with me and I won't spread it to you. And so, it, you know, the Tuttons are, you know, in the hideout are emblematic. If there was one place that I, if you, you said, what's a community? What, what is the definition of a community? I would say, well, the hideout. That is a, uh, really well put. And uh, yeah, and that I hadn't thought of that, uh, uh, Lori, the, uh, the connection uh, that you just made. I mean, you're absolutely correct. MAGA is always crying, weeping, sobbing uh, that their rights are being trashed. Uh, a day doesn't go by where I don't see a sobbing MAGA person. I want to feel like, here, have a tissue. Dry your eyes. All they do is cry and whine like babies. And yet, when MAGAites terrorize the hideout, I don't hear one MAGA person in the city of Chicago coming up and say, hey, this is wrong. You're intimidating free speech. You're canceling their culture. That's a very good point, Lori Glenn. I hadn't thought of that. Come on, MAGA. Actually, I think it's, you know, they don't want to wear masks, and they obviously don't want to wear condoms. So, you know, they've got a problem with coverings. <laughs> I hadn't seen the correlation there, but now suddenly the light is on. Uh, all right. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, uh, this is a perfect uh, point uh, to uh, introduce the concept of cancel culture. This is one of my pet, pet, pet peeves, uh, the whole concept of cancel culture. And uh, I got to give MAGA credit for having completely, in my humble opinion, brainwashed America that this phenomenon even exists. Uh, as I said, it, the only one I see is cancel, whose culture has been canceled, the hideouts. And I haven't seen anybody from MAGA coming to their aid. So, Juanita, you had, before uh, we went on the air, you were saying some things about cancel culture. And I said, hold it, stop, wait till we're on the air and say them. I hope you haven't forgotten them uh, in, the, uh, in the hour or so it's been. But talk a little bit about your uh, attitude when, about the whole concept of cancel culture. Yeah, so, you know, the, the context in which we talk about cancel culture in my household is very much uh, with my stepdaughter who's studying to be an English teacher and she reads a gazillion books and she is on like all these websites where they talk about books and authors put their opinions out there and they talk about cancel culture all the time. And who's always crying about being canceled are white male publishers who have millions of followers and for whom nothing in their lives has been canceled. Right? Except that all of a sudden now, because of social media, it's easy to put a tweet out there to say, I don't like your book. Right? And they feel canceled because now people are saying, we're not buying their book. And they're just horrified. Meanwhile, you've got authors of color, women whose publishers barely put any effort into, you know, getting their books out there. They work really hard to have followers and they still don't have nearly as many followers as these white men who are getting canceled. So it's, it's this whole idea that, oh, now all of a sudden I'm accountable for the things I say and that means I might not sell as many books, so therefore I'm going to whine. But basically you're still the people in power in this culture, right? So I, th I find it ridiculous. You know, it was fine if we didn't have people of color having voice. It was fine when women don't have voice. But if white males get canceled, now all of a sudden there's this ugly cancel culture and it's a bad thing. 
So I think it's I think it's just funny when people think cancel culture is a bad thing because it's usually white males in power upset that now they're being held accountable. <laughs> uh, Laura, your thoughts? Well, I think it's a larger issue about again, do we have the ability to talk with one another, and whether or not we have a national narrative that allows people to communicate and have community in the United States. And I think this is tied into as well the conversation I know that you want to have about critical race theory. And it's all tied together because basically in the world, there's just so much to go around, whether it's resources, energy, power, money. And now what's happened is that the world is changing and women people of color, BIPOC, LGBTQ, people living with disabilities, uh, just a lot of people who have been uh, not able to have as big a, a piece of the pie, well, they now are speaking out and they are getting more of it. And the world is changing and the demographics of the world are changing and um, the world and the United States is not going to be primarily white in a very few years. It is going to be a growing melange of beautiful browns and various shades of all these different colors. And for, I, for one, think that's awesome. In the meantime, though, it does mean that somebody loses out on their ability to have access to power, money, jobs, all of that. And People are angry and upset. And of course, Cheryl Corley with NPR calls me right now, <laughs> just as I need to talk to you. And I have to say, no, I'm not going to take the call. Oh, my God. So, um, and <laughs> shout out to Cheryl Corley, who I love. So I think that cancel culture is about underneath it. Uh, the fears people have of no long of no long, of, of being left out of, of and of no longer having the same kind of power and access that they once had. Now, I work with the left a lot, as Juanita knows. I work with progressives. I am considered a progressive, and some people think I'm very uh, left wing in my persuasion. But uh, the fact is, I'm an older white woman getting older all the time, uh, continually to be white, though I might get a tan sometimes, and uh, I am always a woman. And, uh, uh, and I'm Jewish. And uh, I think in certain cultures that I encounter, I have definitely gotten on Zoom calls with the work that I've done and have people respond to my whiteness. And I know it because if I hadn't been white, I think they would have felt better about me. And I've had people tell me that. I've had actually a black man that I did a Zoom call with on a project said, you know, a lot of people in my community, if when they turned the Zoom on and saw you, would have just hung up on you. So now I guess I could get all pissed off about this. And I know a lot of people do. Um, but I kind of go, yeah, it's kind of understandable. Um, I am a deeply privileged person. I've had pretty much everything I've wanted in life. I've worked really hard for it. I can go on and on about my work ethic and blah, blah, blah. I made everything myself. My dad didn't give it to me. I am an entrepreneur from the beginning and end. I eat what I kill. Yeah, I eat what I kill. <laughs> I don't kill what I eat. <laughs> and uh, all of that. But at the end of the day, my life way better than 99.999% of the humanity. 
And if I was the other 99.9 points percent, I'd probably be really pissed at me for getting so much in life. So this is a battlefield because the world is changing and it's time for young people, it's time for people of color and women and people living with disabilities who, even that term turns me off now because why are we saying they have disabilities? They're different, there are differences but I want to honor them because of the value they bring to the world. So the truth is, is that the people who are, you know, their lunch is being eaten and they don't like it. So they're pissed off and they're trying to fight for what they have, but it's a losing battle because over time, the fact of the matter is the world is not going to be white and it's not going to be Anglo-Saxon Protestant and it's going to be many different religions and colors of the rainbow. So, wow, but right now it's a battlefield mm. that people are angry and scared. Juanita. So I'm done. So you said something at the beginning, Lori, that I think is really important. You said, do we have the ability to talk to each other? And I think that's a very important question. But tweeting at each other about whether I like your book or not, or your TV show, is not the same thing as talking to each other. I right? agree. Well, so I, I think like that we can say that there's cancel culture and, and that's a thing. And what does that mean? And then we can talk about, are we talking to each other? Right. And, you know, who's in the news right now, but Facebook or now Meta, you know, and for all of the ways in which they've screwed up our world, you know. And so maybe we need to get off social media and actually talk to each other. Right. You know, um, and, and, and so there's that, right? There's also this scarcity mindset, which I feel like you referenced that, you know, well, in order for you to have more, I have to have less, right? And first of all, maybe that shouldn't be the mindset to begin with. But let's try to remember who actually has all the stuff and that is keeping us from having it. And it's Elon Musk. It's, not even, it's <laughs> not even the white you know, author who feels bad that he's being canceled because he didn't have that much money either, right? No. He has all the money is Elon Musk and, and, and his buddies, right? And Jeff Bezos. Right, and the people who live at that strata, right? So instead of- And the guy of, who owns Virgin and they're off all right, in space right. now. So, you know, like, <laughs> let's, let's not fight each other about things that those people really are responsible for right but in order for us to have those relationships it, it's not on social media that that we have these conversations it is how do we have even on zoom is way better than on you know on twitter or, you know or facebook or whatever no um, i agree well i think social media has been uh, very detrimental to our democracy and the way uh, media has grown in the direction it has and that people can go and listen to just, you know, what they want to listen to. You, you know, like Fox News would never exist because legally it wouldn't have been possible, but they changed the FCC rulings in the late 90s, which meant that because it used to be that if you were a media outlet, you actually had to tell every side of the story. You were legally not allowed to just say lies. Right, like, just make stuff up. <laughs> and, and this is, you know, we have now gone to the logical conclusion, uh, as some people would say, monopoly capitalism will be the logical conclusion of capitalism, that if you just let people say whatever they want to say and you don't fact check things 
and you don't believe that there are such a thing as facts and that you believe that there is a, some sense, so objectivity is a weird word, I don't want to go there, but uh, I'll take it off the table, but that you can tell a story in a way that allows the different sides of the story to be told, and that's journalism, versus me just saying, you know, something snarky and horrible. I mean, all of that is just ridiculous to me. I, I don't get it. I don't understand how we got to this place in such a short period of time where right. we don't have a dialogue and right. where we're not talking to one another because we have to. This is a pluralistic society. Pluralism means you have people on the right, you have people on the left. You duke it out till you get to the center because everybody's going to be unhappy a little bit in a democracy. You don't get to have everything you want. But you get to live with each other in a public space. And I've been thinking about this so much again, about the requirements for democracy, which is civility, which is that you don't scream, yell, kill, punch. I know some poor stewardess got punched in the nose because she was making some man wear a mask on a plane. And he thought it was okie dokie to punch them. And in our local school boards, these parents think they have the right to intimidate. And on the health boards across the country. I mean, this is outrageous because you don't want to wear a mask. You don't want your children to wear a mask. You're going to punch someone. You're going to shoot them. You're going to hit them. You're going to yell at them. You're going to intimidate them. You're going to paint something horrible on their house or you're going to surround their house. You're going to do threaten them with bodily harm. This isn't democracy. See, this is the road to fascism. And, and, and Trump unleashed this. He unleashed the underbelly of our culture. Because America's always had a really dark underbelly. But now the underbelly is the overbelly. And we see it on a daily basis where we're not able to sit in a room together and talk about these things. And I don't know that Juanita and I always agree on things, but I'm not screaming at her. I know she thinks one way and I think another, and that's okay. I mean, I'm trying to live with my brother. My brother and sister-in-law and nephew live in Texas now, and we don't agree on things. And I'm trying to have a relationship with them where we don't agree on very fundamental things. But what am I supposed to do? Just say, okay, goodbye. I mean, I could, but... He's my brother, my only brother. Do I just never talk to him again, even though we disagree? But then he came to visit and we talked and he said, I agree with you on this, Lori. Well, I agree with you on that. Right. I'm sorry, but yeah. I, I... Yeah, oh, you know, can I just say, you, you say that Trump unleashed this and I think Trump is terrible and certainly did a lot, but I've been thinking a lot about that and, that, and now I understand why Sarah Palin got as far as she did. Right. Yes, is is because this was already there, you know, yes. and so we have to go much further back to to think about how did we get where we are, you know. And well, I said the underbelly it was the yeah. underbelly of America. I agree, it's always been there, but we've always had really good PR to cover it up. But I agree, manifest destiny. What was manifest destiny about? It was an excuse to take, you know, to take the land from the indigenous people. Uh, you know, I don't know. I grew up in a family that had some conservative conservatism in it, but we didn't vote for people who were bananas, yeah. right? <laughs> you drew the but, line. Right. We started voting for people who were bananas a, a, a little while back in a way that to me was new, right? But 
definitely now I see it more going back to Sarah Palin. Yeah, so, I agree anyway, with you. Uh, Sarah Palin, uh, her her popularity uh, in the Republican Party uh, really was sort of like a precursor of Donald Trump. You're absolutely correct when you said that, Juanita, and brought back Yes, numbers. but who let her in? John McCain, who I met and I did work with on campaign finance reform, and I'd had a lot of respect for, till he invited Sarah Palin to the table. And why did he do that? Because he wanted to be president. And he was willing to do anything, including bring this crazy motherfucker to the table and let her be the vice president candidate and allowed her the credibility of that institutional role. And that was horrible. And so we're going to uh, close by uh, where we started. <laughs> we talked about oh, how the okay. lust for power gets people to uh, do things they wouldn't ordinarily yes. want to do or think about doing. In That's the case right. of Chicagoans, it's looked the other way at gross examples of assault and lawlessness. Well, uh, with the Republican Party, it was putting up Sarah Palin. All right, we're out of time. I've, uh, I want to thank you very much, Juanita Irizarry from Friends of the Parks. Always a blast talking to you. And, of course, the great uh, Lori Glenn. I've been having political conversations with Lori Glenn since the Ronald Reagan administration. How about that? Uh, Lori, let me just assure you. I'm going to assure you of one thing. No matter how old you get, you're still younger than me. Uh, so uh, don't feel bad about it. Uh, Juanita, Lori Glenn, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I always appreciate it. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.